Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the rest of the world. And as ever, we have got a lot to explore and make sense of in our time together. If it's okay with all of you, in a few moments, I will reflect on Sue Gray, the report, the Metropolitan Police, what we learn about the state of the UK or certainly the state of England from all of that. And then we've got your wonderful questions. Uh, Just a brief notice before we get going, uh, exploring deeply as ever, King's Place is live on Wednesday June the 8th at 7 o'clock, and there will be many things happening that evening, including this. I got an email last week uh, from Stuart Grant. Now, some of you will say, Stuart Grant, Stuart Grant. Well, you shouldn't. You should remember. Stuart is the great listener who has bought me three pairs of Union Jack socks as a tribute to Lord Frosty Frost. Uh, Lord Frosty Frost famously wore those Union Jack socks during his negotiations with the EU, uh, an act of jingoistic assertiveness that, of course, terrified his European counterparts. And that's why we got such a great Brexit deal. It was those socks that done it. And old Frosty wore them with such pride as he negotiated such a triumphant deal, so triumphant that it is having to be renegotiated. Anyway, Stuart is going to be at the King's Place event, and that's where the formal presentation of the socks will take place. So even if, and you can't be, you are indifferent to the seismic events whirling around us. You've got to come for that. It is the ultimate Lord Frosty Frost tribute evening. Stuart, I look forward to meeting you uh, and getting the socks, which I shall wear with the same kind of pride that Frosty uh, exuded uh, when he wore those uh, wonderful socks. And I, I, I'm just excited by that. There will be other things going on that evening. Uh, it will be epic and the tickets are available on the king's place website wednesday june the 8th and much more besides frosty if we all just reflect on frosty we'll have a nervous collapse there will be more than that i promise you anyway so that's uh, on wednesday june the 8th uh and oh yeah the other thing if you do subscribe to uh patreon the Patreon version of Rock and Roll Politics, or there are other forms in which you can get access to the bonus content. I said that this week I would reveal the first of my new uh, themes uh, for that. We've done some general elections. We're going to do some more general elections. But as an interval, I'm following up a suggestion from one listener to look at the relationship by pr- between prime ministers and their chosen special advisors. And the first one coming to you in June We'll explore the relationship between Boris Johnson and his first chosen special advisor, Dominic Cummings. And there will be others, the fascinating, compelling, enigmatic relationship between Harold Wilson and Marcia Williams. Uh, I I wish I had been able to interview Marcia Williams. I tried because she um, only died quite recently. But I did meet her in a very dramatic context, which I will reflect on in that podcast. Anyway, that's that's if you subscribe. Please do if you haven't yet, um, because there are going to be four of those. And then we might return to general elections or some of you 
keep on coming up with brilliant ideas for other series. Now, The Grey Report. As I record this, I haven't read The Grey Report. Some of you may well have had that opportunity by the time you listen. It largely doesn't matter where we are with The Grey Report because all of us know what happened during the pandemic. Uh, The parties have been sequenced in great detail. Uh, The Metropolitan Police have charged many people, though only Boris Johnson once, for attending these parties and gatherings. And it remains genuinely shocking that they took place on the scale that they did, conveying a total indifference to the mood of the times, as well as the rules that were being set. Now, we have known all of this, and we know Sue Gray is condemning just on the basis of her interim report, which was savage in its indictment as to what was happening behind the scenes in Number 10 and Whitehall. So what do we learn from that sequence. One of the interesting questions, which we've explored briefly before on this podcast, is whether the delay in the publication renders it far less potent. And on that, I'm not so sure. It has become a cliche to say people have moved on. And that, of course, is the message that every timid, tame minister is uttering. You know, time to move on, cost of living crisis, Ukraine. We must move on. I wonder whether the collective memory is quite as fickle as that. Um, When something damning is published, and remember, there is in a way nothing more damning, although there are other things, I think, with this government that compete, there is little more damning, shall we put it that way, uh, than a prime minister setting the rules, breaking rules, lying about doing so. That is the sequence that's being monitored. And let's begin with him. Then we move on to Tory MPs. Then I want to talk about uh, the Metropolitan Police. There is another cliche about uh, Boris Johnson that his capacity for misconduct, for mendacity is, is sort of baked in, that voters know this and don't mind. I don't believe that. In fact, I think it is almost the opposite that Brexit voters saw him as the one they could trust to deliver Brexit. They bought entirely that dangerous juxtaposition when the hung parliament was blocking his plans to leave without a deal, uh, when he said it's parliament versus the people. And the people or the Brexit people love that. It is utterly irrational because they, the people, elected parliament that House of Commons. But their capacity for being betrayed or perceived as perceived betrayals is great. And therefore, they saw him, Johnson, as at one with them, the figure who had the integrity to respect that Brexit referendum. And they saw all the others as the unreliable, fickle, mendacious bunch Parliament, in inverted commas, blocking the will of the people. And so the bond with Johnson is not so much the lovable rogue, but the figure who they could turn to, to deliver their will. 
And if that were to be challenged, that bond breaks. Now, it could be challenged if uh, Labour were more supple on Brexit itself because he hasn't delivered Brexit. He wants to negotiate his own deal, the one hailed at the time by him and Lord Frosty Frost and his union Jack Sox, as I reflected on last week's podcast. But that has not yet bought what some uh, shadow cabinet people speak of as uh, buyer's remorse. By the way, it's a catch-22. If Labour don't mention it, and no one else is going to. Uh, so you're going to have no buyer's remorse. But on this... The breakdown of trust is so vivid and tangible that uh, I think it will make an impact on voters who didn't see him as a lying rogue. They saw him as the one they could trust on Brexit. And now he has broken that trust in a deep and profound way. Uh, And they all remember the lockdown. That lockdown was for many voters who are utterly disconnected from politics most of the time, something that gave them a connection. They felt part of a moment in history where everybody was the same in lockdown and not able to see other people. Uh, You could be rich and not able to do it. You could be famous and not able to do it. Uh, Paul McCartney in lockdown doing an album on his own in his studio to a family crammed into a flat. Obviously, it's not the same but the rules were applied universally. And it kind of brought a sense of connection with politics, which I think partly explained why Johnson remained so popular for so long, even when it was clear that the decisions he was making were literally killing people. And now they find out in more vivid detail, they won't read the uh, full grey report, but they will see the headlines. And even though papers like the Daily Mail have tried to play it down while playing up Starmer's visit to Durham, there is enough of a memory of that collective experience to shock, I suspect, quite a lot of voters. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but I usually, honestly, I don't kind of work on the assumption voters follow politics at all. Us lot of freaks, you know, listening to political podcasts and all the rest of it. We're not typical. By the way, I don't commend their indifference. I think it is irresponsible, the level of indifference. But on this, I sense that they will see Boris Johnson in a light that some in Westminster have always seen him. Self-absorbed, selfishly libertarian and breaking rules that they adhere to. And even though this report has been long delayed. And of course, memories fade to some extent. I think it will remain vivid. And that brings us to Conservative MPs. You know, throughout all of this, they are the agents. And more specifically, I I don't know if any of you heard the podcast I did recently, When Prime Ministers Fall. I looked at the rare occasions in British politics where prime ministers have fallen. It's about four episodes back if you want to have a listen to it. And it seems to me the key agents obviously are the MPs of a governing party, but more specifically ministers. And it is so interesting that ministers at every level have been willing to humiliate themselves by saying it's time to move on. And while that's the case, uh, Boris Johnson uh, not be challenged by his party and therefore remains. And that's another depressing thing about this uh, whole saga, uh, that 
quite a few columnists have been reporting it almost like a sort of as if it was a game. Uh, oh, Johnson will survive. Isn't it remarkable? The Greece piglet analogy apparently composed by David Cameron in a moment of uh, Etonian vivacity. The Greece piglet escapes again, as if it's all a game. And maybe that's how they see it. You know, Charles Walker, who's a nice guy, a Tory MP, who had uh, said uh, Johnson should go, has now said he's changed his mind and said how remarkable it is Johnson's survival instincts. But it's not a game. It's about a leader wholly unsuited for leadership, especially at a time of great seismic emergency. You need someone with a capacity for context, detail, deep thought, emphatically not someone who lives for the immediate and then deals with the consequences when they erupt later. By the way, the characteristics that have got him in a hole with the parties, um, even if he escapes the hole in the short term, apply to the cost of living crisis too. Boris Johnson has really never given much thought to economic policy. If you look back at his columns for the Daily Telegraph and The Spectator, he rarely wrote about economic policy. It's just not something that interests him. He is at times, when it suits him, a Keynesian. um, And those who know him well tell me his instincts are basically Keynesian, which in the current uh, political spectrum of England, anyway, places him on the left in terms of economic policy. But at other times, he can be Thatcherite uh, when he wants uh, short-term tax cuts to help him become popular. And it's driving Sunak crazy. But Sunak himself is a half-formed politician, uh, promoted far too speedily, and is overwhelmed by the range of challenges he faces now. So you have this dance between two very ill-suited figures, Sunak, an ideological Thatcherite, but inexperienced by, you know, people are formed by facing deep crises. But this is new to him. The pandemic was slightly different. Uh, The furlough scheme was quickly choreographed, mainly by Treasury at senior level. He had only just become Chancellor, no time to assert his ideological uh, conservative Thatcherite instincts. This is different. And the spring statement was a really interesting example of it, where Sunak misread wholly the scale of the crisis and the need for intervention because of his fiscal conservatism. It's not a mistake. Uh, He let his ideological instincts blind him. And in a way, that's happened twice. His first budget, when he had just become chancellor, was wholly inadequate to deal with the pandemic about to erupt. And he had to come back with a hugely more interventionist package. And we're going to get another one uh, when number 10 and number 11 can agree on what it should be. It's all part of the same lack of capacity for depth, really. I mean, Johnson's a curious figure. He he can talk more widely than most leaders. I saw someone recommended a YouTube video of a debate he did when he was mayor of London with Mary Beard about um, – it was a sort of one of these contrived debate, what was better, Greece versus Rome. And Johnson was uh, there for – you know, Greece from Homer onwards with citing all his heroes, Pericles and all that lot. And Mary Beard was putting the case for Rome. And on one level, Johnson was very impressive. But it is, it is that for him is context. You know, these heroes, um, Pericles and going fast forward, Churchill, these kind of legendary figures of context. 
he won't be that aware of what happened in the 1970s and the agonies over inflation then and the, the various routes taken and not taken. Um, and Sunak is vaguely aware of it because he's been told by Treasury officials. This is what we are dealing with and Tory MPs have agency. This is a very curious Tory parliamentary party. You have this new intake of red wall MPs, deeply inexperienced at a national level, who fleetingly earlier this year did consider making a move against him. But they are unused to the choreography of conspiracies and coups and so on. They're new to it completely. And then you have more senior people like uh, Andrew Mitchell and David Davis, who want, uh, certainly Andrew Mitchell wants Jeremy Hunt to take over. And you have Jeremy Hunt waiting in the wings, unclear, as one of his supporters has put it, as to how much of an ankle he needs to show now. His supporters want him to show much more of an ankle than he has so far. And maybe he has done by the time you hear this podcast. So it's a weird parliamentary party, not full of experienced titans, as was the case when Thatcher fell in 1990, uh, surrounded by big figures, fully formed, experienced in all kinds of crises, uh, and rising to that particular challenging one. In the meantime, while we await developments on that front, what about the Metropolitan police. Uh, the entire sequence is disgraceful. The Metropolitan Police declaring at the beginning, in spite of an eruption of evidence of these behind-the-scenes parties uh, in number 10, declared they had no intention of investigating them. Then, just as the Gray report was to be published, they announced that they were going to do an investigation and therefore insisted that the Gray report could not be published in case it prejudiced their investigation. I don't believe it was done consciously to help Johnson, but it was done with spectacular, clumsy naivety. And it sure did lead to a pause in the crisis uh, that Johnson was facing. Then they began their investigation. It went on for a very long time, considering Sue Gray gave them all the evidence they required at the beginning. And then came up with this bizarre outcome in which, on the whole, it was junior people who got the fines with uh, Boris Johnson getting only one for what appeared to be the least offensive of the various gatherings that took place. And they did this without offering any explanation of the sequencing, the parties they looked at, their decision suddenly and abruptly to end the whole investigation, the criteria whereby some got fined and others, the big figures, didn't. Simon Case, um, the cabinet secretary, got no fine at all. Why? And I think this tells us a lot about British institutions. They hide behind their right to claim secrecy in the way they operate. Uh, obviously, on one macro level, the Metropolitan Police are accountable. Part of the problem is they're accountable to too many bodies. They're accountable to the Mayor of London, to the Home Secretary, and so on. Um, and that causes in itself a muddle. But they claim the right for their operational uh, priorities and activity to be cloaked in a kind of secrecy. And in that, at the very least, incompetence can flourish and at worst corruption. And we've seen this so often. 
And there was, you would have thought, some hope. This is another police force. But, you know, after the 1980s and Hillsborough and what was unmasked ultimately there would lead to a greater sense of openness and transparency on operational matters as much as that kind of macro level where they have to answer to a home secretary or whatever police commissioners and all the rest of it, of this multi-layered hierarchy that gives the impression of accountability but actually allows people to hide behind the cloak of their right to sort of near secrecy. And in operating in darkness, as I say, at the very least, it appears as if the Metropolitan Police have been incompetent, but it could be worse. No idea what conversations took place, you know, why it was that they concluded uh, Johnson, who attended some of the gatherings where others were fine, shouldn't be fined. They should explain. I think as part of the shakeup of the Metropolitan Police, which every politician I speak to thinks is urgently required for this dodgy institution to restore trust, it really should be an institution purer than pure. There needs to be huge reforms. It's not just about appointing a successor to Cresta Dick and that kind of thing. It's about transparency and accountability and clarity. And instead, we have had, frankly, a scandalous intervention in this thing. And it's always the case, it always struck me, you know, with the Iraq war and the um, the intelligence. Of course, the debate in Britain, because it always goes straight away to the the politicians was did Blair lie or not over the weapons of mass destruction? Perfectly valid question. But the more interesting and pertinent question was why was the intelligence so wrong? But because the intelligence agencies operate in partly understandable darkness, there was no real explanation. It was wildly wrong, that intelligence. Now, a lot of it was Uh, done with loads of qualifications put in that Blair had no choice but to ignore because he had become trapped in his relationship with Bush and Iraq and America. But even with qualifications, what, what are they doing putting in this nonsense? It's rarely asked of institutions cloaked in secrecy. And issues about accountability and transparency that were so potent over some people's loathing of the European Union you know, who who's accountable to whom in Britain if we're run by Europe kind of stuff. What about the Metropolitan Police and other institutions in Britain? So anyway, they there are a few preliminary thoughts on the lessons arising from so-called party gate. Uh, there, there will be many others and there will be consequences. Uh, these things don't go away completely. And we will reflect on them, who knows, perhaps at King's Place, depending on what happens in the coming days. But now, after my reflections, hold on a second, I've just got to put my reading glasses, getting to that point in life where I need reading glasses because I'm coming to your questions. By the way, for those of you running, jogging or whatever, yeah, we're getting to questions at around 26 minutes. And if you want to put in questions or points in the coming days, it's steverick14 at iCloud.com. So, oh, yeah, Stuart, by the way, uh, of the Union Jack Socks, he makes a link between 
uh, various politicians and rock stars. He says, yeah, because he's reading my book on the prime ministers we never had. And he said, within the chapter on Michael Portillo, I could relate entirely when you described him as the David Bowie of UK politics. Yeah, Portillo's persona kept on changing in politics. Now he's that man wearing a pink jacket on a train. I compared him to David Bowie, who changed his persona quite often. Uh, So I've had some fun. This is Stuart imagining a rock and roll politics hit parade made up of some of today's leading politicians. I'm sure fellow listeners in our workers cooperative could come up with some better suggestions. Here are a few of Stuart's. Boris Johnson, Elton John, I'm still standing. Yeah, very pertinent this week. If he is, by the time you hear this, Rishi Sunak is David Essex. The sun ain't going to shine anymore. Uh, Essex apparently had a hit with a cover version of this song. I could hear David Essex singing that song, Stuart. Sun ain't. Do you remember? He did a song, David Essex, called The Winter's Tale, you know, based on the Shakespeare play. Um, and <laughs> it was terrible. It's only a winter's tale. Uh, Shakespeare would have been stirring in his uh, grave, but he was very cool, David Essex. Dominic Raab is uh, Robert Palmer. Some guys have all the luck. Liz Truss is Taylor Swift. We are never, ever getting back together. Pretty Patel, Tina Turner, back where you started via Rwanda. (laughs) Yeah, you'd be lucky to get back where you started if you get to Rwanda. By the way, what's happening with Rwanda? Oh, blimey. Jacob Rees-Mogg, Matt Munro, born free. Yeah, well, he was born lucky was the reason. Yeah, he was born, born free. Um, Dominic Cummings could be Ozzy Osbourne paranoid. There are some great, great examples in here. Uh, maybe we'll do some more at King's Place, Stuart. Um, so thank you for that. Graham Gording writes, The very high electricity standing charge and the lack of gas storage facilities are a direct result of the way energy companies were privatised and then regulated. The cost, adequacy and failure of supply of housing have their causes in the failure to invest the receipts uh, in new housing. He's analysing, Graham, various policies and structures that have contributed to the current crises, the cost of living, the housing. And then he goes on to health and education management has been fragmented in deliberate policy decisions so that there's no effective planning mechanism for local school and health provision. Yep. And yet, he notes, with all of these, there don't seem to be any political consequences. Some hapless official from Ofgen has to justify the energy policy. Councils can't even afford to provide their services because of continual reductions of funding. But they get the blame, not the chancellors. There's a weird narrative. When the world's banking system collapsed, it was all Gordon Brown's fault. When these policies fail... Dismally, is Gordon Brown, Vladimir Putin and Emmanuel Macron's fault? Why do the Conservatives and government seem able to dodge consequences as far as the electorate is concerned? Yeah, it's interesting. It's partly because uh, the consequences aren't explained very effectively by the opposition. The energy market is utterly bizarre. And I think still most voters assume when they choose one of those energy companies, they are choosing a kind of different supplier in terms of where they get the gas. But of course, they just choose a company betting on gas prices. That's what the companies do. 
And it's a market that doesn't work when energy becomes scarce and the prices soar, as is the case at the moment, and then the government has to intervene anyway. But if you're too scared as an opposition to address the failings of some of these markets because you're worried that newspapers and others will say, oh, you're going back to the 70s or, oh, you're Corbynistas in disguise and all this stuff, there will be no proper expose and no space for alternative arguments to be put. It is the case that Brown got blamed for the financial crash, uh, even though he was actually doing quite well. And some of the connections are not being made now to uh, policy and outcome, and they should be. Andrew Conway writes, uh, on Northern Ireland, if we've truly moved on from extremism, there may be a workable solution that requires compromise from all would be a very soft NI exit, NI exit from the UK, Northern Ireland exiting the UK, uh, continued independence from the EU and a referendum on the currency. That's quite a sequence, Andy, quite a sequence you're putting forward there. Uh, what would the unionists do, etc.? Northern Ireland would have its own passport and an open economy. But what currency, Andy? I think you are putting forward a proposition with many explosive points on route. Northern Ireland independence is his big idea. Thank you very much. Uh, Terry Kelk, what do you think about Liverpool fans booing the national anthem? Terry points out he's not from Liverpool. It seems to me that if the dominant party wraps itself in the flag and tries to monopolise patriotism, then it's not entirely surprising if some people start to resent the trappings of that so-called patriotism. Yeah, I agree, Terry. I mean, people are disgusting, booing the national anthem. But if uh, patriotism is seized uh, as a means of justifying all kinds of things, which people from Liverpool might disagree with, it's not surprising. And I, I think it's entirely legitimate. I noticed Jurgen Klopp said he thought it, would be, it was legitimate that they would have concerns about a form of patriotism. This word patriotism has been seized by one party for a long time. Now, Keir Starmer is trying to seize it back, but a bit clunkily, you know, draped in a big union jack um, when he makes a party broadcast or whatever. Patriotism should not be. I mean, I'm a great, I, I don't like this thing of, oh, let's find consensus and centre ground. I don't believe the centre ground exists. But patriotism should not be a party issue because most people go into politics to do better for their country. We just disagree about what is better. But it's a patriotic uh, instinct that makes you want to go into politics partly whether you're from the left or right or whatever. So it shouldn't belong to one party. And Labour should be re-seizing the flag to, to neutralise it because the flag has always been a big feature at Tory party conferences, for example. Anyway, thank you very much for that. Jack Branford. I've heard oblique comments in the media that some Tories may be thinking quietly that at a, a time in the wilderness in opposition may be necessary for the party to regroup. Do you think it will grow as an idea that it shouldn't do? If you're a Tory, you should not wish for any loss of power because power once lost is hard to come back, get it back. There is a view, I know, that, uh, that you, you can hear it being said occasionally in Tory circles, maybe the next election is one to lose because the economic crisis is so grave. Let Labour come in, screw it up and come back in five years' time. So many governing politicians have made that assumption. 
in 2010, pathetically, quite a few Labour figures said, look, we're exhausted. Um, there's no space for a coalition. Uh, it's time to let the others come in. Well, 12 years later, Labour are still nowhere near power. It happened in 1979. If you look at the diaries of outgoing Labour cabinet ministers, they all worked on an implied assumption they'd be back in four years, that this weirdo Thatcher would uh, uh, fail and they'd be back. They were out for 18 years. Now, Conservative parties are rarely out that long because of the torrents in England propelling them towards power in the end. But it's dangerous to let go of the levers if you want to continue to rule uh, for uh, a length of time. Paul Cooper puts forward a a thesis that uh, electoral reform or PR, they all have those various voting systems, their own tricky consequences. And he gives uh, examples of, for example, in Northern Ireland, where candidates put out a signal, don't vote for me, vote for the others on the list because I'm okay, but I want to get them through. And all the consequences of a system which can lead people into contortions and deviousness. And he suggests don't go near it, even though first past the post is also tricky. I'm reaching my conclusion, Paul, on electoral reform, uh, having been against it, then been swayed a bit by uh, brilliant questions from listeners. And the electoral reform special is coming up soon. More announcements on that front shortly. Thank you, Paul. Venetia Kane, I'm wondering about should Wakefield go, these are the by-elections coming up, Wakefield go to Labour and Tiverton and Honiton to the Lib Dems. Could Starmer at last dare start raising the question of Europe? And the answer to, I think, as you probably know, from my point of view, is yes, he should have done already. Let this hard Brexit be owned by Johnson and Lord Frosty Frost and the others for just backing it without scrutinising it and create the space to engage with Brexit supporters on the basis that they've been let down by the steep deal. Of course there is that space. Um, And silence did not and has not worked in the Red Wall yet on Brexit. And that isn't unsurprising. To pretend it isn't an issue and to pretend that you can wipe out your own past on the issue is just clunky, misjudged politics. You have a past on the issue, you need to address it and then get on and present the future whilst condemning this version of Brexit negotiated by two people, a half-attentive Johnson and the non-elected Frosty Frost. Um, Plenty of space, Venetia, and you're right if Labour starts to appear more electorally formidable, that space gets bigger. David Smith, who's a solicitor and been following the, or are you a barrister, David? Anyway, a lawyer. Uh, He's been following Partygate legal implications with great interest and has occasionally emailed the podcast. If the very limited info about the cake ambush is correct, should Rishi Sunak have refused his penalty notice? It's a good question. Sunak had arrived for a meeting. The poor sod got caught in this party. It seems to me that some junior members of staff have been issued with a fixed penalty notice when the PM and others at the same event have not. That's definitely the case with the police. Clear answers 
Clever answers, or it being the PM's home, may have saved face. But for some, wouldn't it be interesting if a fixed penalty notice was refused and a hearing required? It would only take a sour member of staff and all could be revealed. Yeah, some of these people should challenge this because there is an apparent inconsistency in who's getting these notices. Maybe you could do the legal case, David, if one were to come up. But I think, to be honest, they all want to pay up and forget about it. But will voters forget about it? Gillian Oliver wonders whether West Streeting is peaking too soon. West Streeting is certainly the media favourite at the moment uh, in the Labour Party. And there is a danger of potential candidates peaking too soon. There have been a hell of a lot of potential leadership candidates who don't become leaders. And the art of leadership, and it's partly luck, is to peak just when a vacancy arises. Tony Blair was kind of peaking when John Smith sadly died suddenly in 1994. She uh, also quotes from Geoffrey Archer's prison diaries and uh, about how you can misread situations. Uh, uh, he, and she quotes from his entry in the autumn of 2001. I must read those diaries. Are they good, Gillian? Anyway, Archer is reflecting this was soon after Labour's second win in 2001. This is from the diary. It is possible that the party that governed for the longest period of time during the 20th century will not hold office in the 21st. Or will Tony Blair suddenly look fallible? And as Gillian notes, his fallibility was being played out as Archer was writing because it followed uh, September the 11th, uh, that that. Uh, appalling sequence that ended, or didn't end, but included the war in Iraq. And so, yeah, uh, as Archer was contemplating the death of the Tory party, a very tentative rebirth was in sight, such as the compelling nature of politics. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. David MacDonald uh, wonders whether Labour should attempt to go for a Devo Max solution, also known as a Home Rule referendum. It was said at the time of the first referendum that if Cameron had offered that alongside full independence, then Scotland would have gone for Devo Max. That might be a route through, David, although at the moment independence remains such a potent force. As you know, Gordon Brown is reviewing the whole structure of the UK and he, I think, is going to go for Devo Max for Scotland. Now, that might be a route through. We have many listeners in Scotland. I think some will say it won't be a route through. But let's see 
when Brown unveils all of that. Now, Peter Hand, who uh, lives in Bedford, I met somewhere and he, he said, oh, I emailed you. I said, well, where is the I, – I've lost – I can't find the email. I sent it on the podcast. Anyway, he's popped up again, Peter, uh, to note uh, in Alan Duncan's diaries. He referenced the fact that Philip Hammond was the only member of the cabinet who took on the two chief of staff under Theresa May, Fiona Hill and Nick Timothy, and his uniqueness in government to be immune to their influences. Peter, I think you tell me that as uh, something to be impressed by, and it's good that you have assertive cabinet ministers, no question. Johnson hasn't got any. Uh, and almost Sunak, I put in that non-assertive cat- category. Good for Hammond in that sense. But I think, Peter, that Hammond was quite often wrong and Nick Timothy right about what was required in economic uh, policy, um, except on Brexit, where uh, Nick Timothy was a Brexiteer and, and, and Hammond recognised the economic catastrophe that that would cause. Simon Wellings, love the show, which I listen to while simultaneously running, baking, doing laundry, drinking, whiskey, walking the dog and driving through Tuscany. I find it relaxes me. Yeah, well, I I kind of think you need to be relaxed doing all of that. If it's okay with you, I wanted to follow up on your point about Keir Starmer's resignation gamble. I thought it was a decent move, both politically and ethically, sharply contrasting his character and decency with Johnson's lack thereof. Perhaps, as you say, it does risk breaking the spell and opening the door to leadership speculation, but is that necessarily a bad thing? Is it not healthy for parties and the electorate to think about future candidates? At least Labour has some to choose from. Lisa Nandy, Wes Streeting, Angela Rayner, David Lammy, to name a few, and with the likes of Ed Miliband and Yvette Cooper bringing experience to the table, it's quite an impressive front bench. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I I agree with you that it is it, it sometimes in opposition a front bench surfaces where you detect weightiness uh and and leadership potential. And I think after a long long time we've reached that point with Labour. Um but it is interesting as I say that leadership is about casting a spell that you're going to be there forever, that you people can't see a future without you as leader. And that door has been slightly pushed ajar by Keir Starmer uh, in offering to resign if the Durham police do. Well, who knows what the Durham police are thinking? You know, it's like the Metropolitan Police. It's all, it's, it's, none of us have a clue. And finally, Neil Gwynn. Love the show, which I listen to while I'm simultaneously. Uh, oh, yeah, no, I've, I've, oh, right. I've done. I made a terrible mistake here. Neil, guess what I've done? I have copied and pasted Simon's question again. So I haven't got your question. Hold on a second. Let me see if I can find it. It's brilliant. You write so many brilliant questions. Uh, and I spent ages reading them and kind of working out what to ask. Oh, here we are. I've got yours, Neil. Last podcast, you read out a comment by Andrew saying Labour's recovery in Scotland wasn't as good as it appeared. I would concur with this analysis. While their vote share has gone up, it's still not very impressive, and they have been flattered by a Tory collapse. John Curtis did some analysis of the results and confirmed Labour and Lib Dems have grabbed some of the Tory vote, but that um, but that the constitutional issue dominates Scotland unionist voters who now tactically vote to maximise unionist seats. And Neil makes many other points. If it's okay with you, Neil, I've read them all, and they're very interesting. I haven't got time to read the whole thing out. Um, But all I would say about the situation is, you know, 
that there are contexts and immediate contexts. And the immediate context had been so dire for Labour in Scotland just to move into that second place, albeit without uh, a massive increase in share of vote and dependent on a collapse of the Tory vote. It kind of psychologically gives a more stable platform which could feed on itself. But I take your point that there have been kind of well, those results have been kind of interpreted, misinterpreted and interpreted again many times since uh, early May. Um, so anyway, look, thank you so much for all those brilliant questions. I'm going to leave it there for now because some of you might have the grey report to read and the photos to look at. So I will see you by which time there will be the consequences played out uh, at King's Place live on June the 8th. It's streaming live too. If you can't make it down to London, there are tickets for that on the King's Place uh, website. So you'll be able to see over having a glass of wine, me getting the Union Jack socks and the consequences being explored. Uh, And of course, you all get the chance to raise points, ask questions, vote on predictions. And if you don't mind, if you could leave a review of the podcast, it gives access to others. But only a Good reviews, please. I can't cope with negative stuff. I'm too fragile. Like Rishi, you know, and half-formed politicians who understandably don't like criticism. Anyway, look, thank you so much for listening. And yeah, big, big days ahead. And we will keep together on all fronts to make sense of it all. Have a good time. Thank you. Bye. Bye.